Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. You're welcome to News Talk's Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, coming up on today's programme, banter in the workplace is often seen as just harmless in nature, but in some cases, it may actually be disguising a toxic work culture. So, I'm going to be talking to a clinical psychologist about how to deal with a difficult work environment as an employee. And if you're the boss, we'll be highlighting the signs that you should look out for in identifying behaviours which could lead to uncomfortable situations for your staff. And as Irish holidaymakers are stuffing their wheelie cases and taking to the skies again with gusto, we're going to be looking at where they're going and how the international energy prices and supply chain issues are affecting the cost of global travel and your summer breakaway. I'll be joined by two leading industry experts to talk about the issues facing the global travel sector. And finally, doom and gloom at Davos. Economist Dan O'Brien gives us his take on the prospects of a global recession and the end of globalisation. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at StockNT. Well, first up today, uh, work wellness is increasingly important and many, many companies are taking it much more seriously as they battle now for talent. Um, there's obviously a need to create a safe environment in a workplace. It's not just about where you go to earn a living. To discuss the issue, I'm now joined by Anna Elliott-Tamby, who's a clinical psychologist. She's a coach, a workplace wellbeing expert and editor of Healthy Leadership and Organisations Beyond the Shadow Side. Anna, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for the opportunity, Mandy. I'm glad to be here. Now, Anna, presumably in a post-COVID work environment, everybody is much more in tune with the importance of well-being in the workplace. So is there a growing demand for your type of service in, in business in general? And what does that entail? There is, uh, an in- you're absolutely right, there is an increased demand for well-being and most businesses in most sectors have been offering that to their staff. The what's happening is people are given more access to counselling, either internally or externally. They're being given help in terms of how to look after themselves during the lockdown and also now on return to the office for those organisations that are looking at return to the office or looking at hybrid working. The general focus, Mandy, is on helping the person with their own personal well-being. A few organizations are looking at how to help managers help their staff. Hmm. Um, And that's the main emphasis. What they're not looking at is the other factors around the organization that may be impacting well-being. Yeah. And that brings us to um, your other role, which is editor of the Healthy Leadership and Organizations Beyond the Shadow Side. Can you just explain to me, Anna, what is the shadow side? This is uh, the concept of golden and shadow comes from Jung, who based his work on sort of a lot of ancient philosophy. So the the idea is that we all possess a golden side and a shadow side to ourselves. Um, So the golden side for me would be kindness, compassion, respect. The shadow side may be sort of the more negative things like lying, not being patient, and then the more serious behaviors like fraud and corruption, bullying and harassment. So the notion in the book is that we have both of them and it's about how to find a better balance between both for ourselves as leaders 
and for organisations. Now, looking at that shadow side, Anna, there was um, a very interesting report recently in the Financial Times, which said that the UK Employment Tribunal case numbers had increasingly seen the use of banter in the workplace uh, as a cause of defence. Do you see that this is something that's much more commonplace in uh, toxic workplace environments? Are they using, you know, banter as as a defence a bit more than they had in the past? I think it that is true to some extent, Mandy, that, you know, banter is more used now. But I think also um, it's being reported more because people are becoming more courageous about reporting and about speaking up about things that they've endured. And I think that's linked to a lot of the movements like Me Too and Black Lives Matter, where people are now where people used to previously be silent. They're now articulating that more. And one of the reports uh, was also cited was a, a UK professional body which said that um, 24% of employees think that bullying and harassment are still swept under the carpet. Um, is that worrying given the prevalence we think we have about, you know, recognising the well-being of the individual in the workspace that still a quarter of employees feel that they're not in a position to uh, vocalise their concerns about this type of behaviour? It is definitely worrying, um, Andy, because people, you know, there there is research to show that people are actually suffering psychologically when they're having to work in such environments, and especially if they can't leave. And I think it's there, it exists, and I think what we're very good at is producing research that shows that what we're not so good at um, is actually doing something positive positive about it, to actually do something sustainable, something consistently to tackle the reasons why those behaviours exist. One of the issues that um, always uh, strikes me when you're dealing with uh, subjects like this is, where is the onus lie? Is it on the individual to either call it out or improve their own uh, circumstances within the existing workplace or Is it the responsibility of the employers? So should you be trying to correct yourself or going to your employers to report? What's the what's the advice you would give employees on that front? Um, I think the onus is collective. I think if we leave the onus to the employees, we may be placing them in an impossible situation. Um, I I think I remember uh, I was doing some research as part of an organization I worked in and I met someone who'd been who'd faced discrimination for over 11 years. And she was in a city where she could have moved. And I asked her, I said, I hope you don't mind me asking you this, but please tell me why you are still here. And she said, at least here, I know what they're going to do. So she had been so skewed in her thinking Mm. by experience that she felt she could do nothing. And that's what a lot of people do. I think the onus is collective and the leaders need to be taking that risk of doing something. And that's something that the Financial Reporting Council here And the independent auditors are saying that it is time for boards and governors uh, and leaders to now take that step and do something constructive. Some are, but not enough are. Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it, Anna, to try and find a collective approach when it comes to issues like this because no country is the same culturally, no company is the same culturally, and therefore yeah. it's not easy to develop a one-size-fits-all approach. So h- how do companies tackle this? I, I think some do it because of who the leader is and the, when the person comes in. I've seen organizations shift from shadow and negative to positively quite quickly, depending on who the leader is who, who comes in. 
And so I think it's a leader's um, approach that then influences others to behave appropriately. I think you can be more systematic also by looking at how you're governing, what your infrastructure is, how people are being encouraged to uh, enact what's been known as collective accountability. So people are uh, encouraged to be positive, to be positive towards each other, to work positively, but also be feel that they can address the negative in an open way and that there is accountability by all for all. Um, it's not easy to achieve, but there are some places where that's actually happening. And in terms of um, being an employee in a company, um, what instances or examples could you cite for someone who's looking out for examples of, look, this might be um, sig- symptomatic of, of a toxic culture within a company? What should people look out for? I think it's where uh, you, if you go into that office or that organization, you don't see people talking to each other. Or what you do is you see people, cliques, mm. people not not being willing to admit to mistakes and everybody's fallible, especially in these post-COVID days, we're much more fallible, we're not working as we used to, uh, where there is silence or you see a certain group leading the toxicity. It, it's where you see silence, where you see people shunt, shattered. You're not. You're not. You're going to sense that something is not right. And Anna, are you seeing much more of this type of behaviour now in that post-COVID kind of transition workspace? Are people trying to find their way? Are you? Is there signs that it, it, it's more prevalent? It is. I think it's prevalent, but also it's being spoken about more. I mean, one of the, you know, the the massive great resignation where so even just in America, 48 million people apparently resigned last year. Um, the you know, It's being talked about more. So it's prevalent. It's there. It exists. I think um, what I think is also happening in post-COVID days is managers who are used to managing by observation, and, and weren't that secure in, in themselves and now were, had managed, had to learn how to manage uh, remotely. So they couldn't see people. So they couldn't control as much as they used to by being in the office. So some of them did resort to negative uh, behaviors. One example is a, a manager who whose team started working remotely insisted on team members logging in every 15 minutes mm. so that she knew where they were. I mean, that had nothing to do with the work, but she at least felt that she was managing them by knowing where they were. Mm. And if you find yourself in, in a toxic workplace now, is it about changing your own perspective and looking at your own positives or do you try and change the workplace environment you're in? I don't mean, you know, move job. I mean, can you actually take an initiative and approach someone now? Is that openness there, do you think, a bit more than it was before? I think a lot of what you decide to do if you are the target is depends on how strong you feel and how much power you have. Now, somebody who feels strong enough and powerful enough can do what's known as manage up so that they can respond to the bullying or the harassment or the inappropriate banter by not reacting and not responding as the person carrying out those behaviors wants. And so therefore you are likely to change a person's behavior. But if you feel that you don't have the power, that's when people stay silent or they try and look for somewhere else if they can. If they don't feel they have the strength, again, they may be silent. They may talk to one or other persons, but 
A lot of it depends on the power you feel you have and the strength you feel you have. And it takes as much strength to be quiet and endure as it does to speak up. And then in that situation where somebody is not strong enough to um, speak up for themselves, what should leadership or managers look out for to try and identify people who may be in a difficult situation but not particularly able to help themselves? You may see increased sickness. You may see lower performance. You may see people avoiding situations. If it's the manager that is themselves bullying, harassing, or being inappropriately in terms of what is said, they may avoid situations with that manager. Um, they may, uh, and so those are the sort of things that you would expect to see. And just if Anna, you were leadership. Anna, just a final word from you on, on something you mentioned earlier, which was the inappropriate banter. It's very difficult, isn't it, to assess what is culturally acceptable in a different country or a different company. Um, what are, are there general rules that we can all kind of uh, look out for or, or learn from? That's a very good question, Mandy. I think if you're from that culture as the other person, I think try and move and, and think about being respectful and use that as your, in a sense, your value that will guide you in what you say and do. Now it is, uh, banter depends on the intention of the person saying whatever is going to be said and also on the recipient is. And just try and be sensitive to what you're saying if you're from that culture. Um, if you're from another culture, then I think ask for guidance and try and learn as much about the other culture as you can, uh, because you, there may be things that you don't understand. For example, I'm originally from Sri Lanka, but I grew up in England. Now, I did go back to Sri Lanka to work for a little bit, and I'm perfectly okay with people calling me Anna wherever I am. Mm -hmm. But in Sri Lanka, even people who know me who have become friends from being colleagues will not call me Anna. They will call me by my first name. So I know that that's something I can't joke about. I, I think it, it's, you know, I cannot break that cultural rule. I can try and if I'm in a different country, I can learn and I can ask and I can apologize um, when I make a mistake, which I may, which I know I've done when I've worked in different countries. And that's really it, isn't it? It's about being sensitive to the environment that you find yourself in, firstly, but also sensitive to the person who you're interacting with, because not everybody will be able to give a strong signal. Um, so is there more empowerment going on uh, or education, not empowerment, sorry, education within companies to try and teach people about these triggers or signals? Not that I can see. I mean, there, there's, there's a fair amount of training going on in unconscious bias. But as a, a colleague of mine said, why are you teaching something you already know? I think we need to do more, but I think it's more around understanding, respect and articulating what people already know, because people know this, is that some don't enact the need for respect and decency. So it's just having those conversations because we already know what to do. It says that some of us choose not to. So I'm just going to ask you a quick question about how one survives a toxic work workplace. But it's it's kind of counterintuitive for me because my advice would be to try and do everything you can to leave that toxic workplace. But what advice could you give yes. someone about getting through the job if they don't have um, the capacity or the, their circumstances won't allow them to change? What can you do? What practical advice can you give them? 
first, please, please remember your own worth and that you are who you look at in the mirror, not what is being said about you. Look for support and get support. And that might mean seeing a counselor away from the organization. And remember your own talents, your skills, your ability to do the job. And just those three, remember who you are. Most importantly, remember who you are, remember your own worth and live that worth and maybe carry something around with you that reminds you of that. You know, I, if I'm not going to feel confident, I, I, I actually wear a pearl because it reminds me of my grandfather who was a strong person. Well, Anna, that's uh, sage advice and a very interesting topic. Thank you for very much for joining us today. That's Anna Eliotambi, who is a clinical psychologist, coach and workplace wellbeing expert. Thank you for joining us today, Anna. Many thanks, Mandy. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up next, it's up, up and away as Irish travellers take to the skies. But where are we all going and what effect is the energy crisis likely to have on the cost of your summer holiday? Welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. That sound will be familiar to anyone who grew up in Ireland in the 1980s when we had one holiday per year and it was a very big deal. I wonder if things have gone full circle now as energy prices, carbon taxes and COVID-19 all take their toll on the cost of travel. Well, to discuss the issue, I'm joined now in studio by Paul Hackett, who is CEO of Click and Go and on the line by journalist and broadcaster Simon Calder and host of the excellent podcast, You Should Have Been There. Paul and Simon, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Mandy. Uh, very welcome. Uh, pleasure to be here. Paul, I might start off with you by looking at the Irish market first of all. Is it fair to say that 2022 will be a normal year? Are we back to 2019 levels? Uh, where And where are the biggest destinations for, for Irish holidaymakers this year? Normal would be wonderful, <laughs> but I don't think we're going to get to normal in Ireland this year. Um, most of the travel businesses are forecasting somewhere between 75 to 80% of 2019 levels. It has been a very fluctuating year in terms of where things were. Like, it's only January since testing was dropped. It's only late January yeah, since so, there was... So 80% is not bad at all, is it? It's not bad mm. because there was nothing booking in 21 for 22 in Ireland. It'll be a different story that Simon will relate to in the UK. But in Ireland... Testing restrictions only dropped in early January. COVID restrictions only dropped in late January. We then had one month of normal and we then had Ukraine. And Ukraine per se is not impacting on people's holiday or travel choices, but it's the narrative around the cost of living increases, energy increases and just general inflation that has really weakened consumer confidence in what was a very weakened consumer Mm. when it comes to international travel. I think there's very few countries in Europe that international travel was as demonised as it was in Ireland during the pandemic. Mm. So Irish consumers, you know, didn't travel. The fundamentals are strong for this year. We have two years of pent-up demand. We have lots of supply in terms of the airlines and the destinations being back to normal, as you say. And some people were not financially impacted during the pandemic. So yes, Mandy, we should be seeing normal, but we're not going to see it. We are seeing... uh, a very last minute late market. So Mm. consumers are deciding 
within a window of four to six weeks. And that, I think, is down to how they feel financially about themselves and where their confidence is. Because we can see from the SRI, we can see from all of the indices reporting on consumer confidence that consumer confidence amongst the Irish consumers is is really weak at present. Simon, I might bring you in here then just to pick up on that point. Uh, is Is the... Irish market sort of um, indicative of what's happening elsewhere? Are you seeing this type of uh, more last-minute planning replicated uh, across Europe and in the UK? Uh, Certainly in the UK, but with an added thing, I'm afraid, which is the operational problems that our biggest airlines are having. Now, clearly, Ryanair, biggest budget airline in Europe, is um, having one or two problems, but nothing on the scale of British Airways or EasyJet. Um, so, for example, today, EasyJet has cancelled dozens of flights, um, many of them short notice from its main base at, uh, at Gatwick Airport. Um, and um, British Airways, over 100 flights every day being cancelled um, as a result of the, uh, the problems that they are um, experiencing with, the, um, uh, uh, with shortage of staff. So, uh, just at the time when everyone wants to travel, mm. it appears that our two biggest airlines have overpromised what they will be able to operate. And therefore, you've got a very, very stressful situation. I mean, I've been talking to passengers who were at Gatwick Airport late last night. They suddenly found out they wouldn't be traveling, abandoned by the airline, they say. And um, it's very, very messy and very uncertain. And that means for the um, uh, travel industry, uh, it's uh, you know, people are getting uh, very jittery, very um, concerned about whether or not if they book a holiday, it will actually uh, turn up. That's very interesting, Simon, because the airline industry was literally grounded by the pandemic and one might have thought that... um, uh, they had done a lot of preparation and planning to to get those consumers back up in the air. Can you talk to me about the different airlines um, and what they're doing to meet those challenges? Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, I, the the uh, difference is, is really strange. And I've been uh, travelling uh, far and wide uh, over the past, uh, well, in fact, since we were sort of allowed back in the sky. Um, I remember the first time I flew back to something was um, 11th of June, 2020, I remember it well. Um, and Ryanair, which has been probably the airline I've used the most, um, has been performing absolutely as you would expect. Um, no, no difference from, from normal, usually on time, friendly service, um, very efficient and good value. What we're seeing with uh, other airlines, though, with Air, they're expanding very rapidly. They're, they kind of made a land grab for mm. uh, a lot of slots. And uh, so actually did uh, British Airways and EasyJet on British Airways trying to maintain its slot portfolio at Heathrow Airport. EasyJet, very keen not to um, allow competition in if it can avoid it. They they basically bid for lots of slots at uh, Gatwick and they, now they can't um, use them. Um, and so... You're seeing a lot of stretches and strains on those two airlines, BA and EasyJet in particular. You're also, and I know this has been happening at uh, Dublin Airport a lot, seeing really serious problems with um, uh, the ground part of the operation. Paul, did you want to pick up on that point there? Yeah, I think luckily Irish consumers are not seeing an impact with regard to Aer Lingus and Ryanair. From an airline point of view in Ireland, it's working. We're actually hearing from our suppliers in the destinations 
how badly impacted they are by UK cancellations. Mm. So exactly what Simon is saying, on a daily basis, BA and EasyJet are cancelling hundreds of flights because of a staffing issue. Thankfully, that's not the case here, but, but we, we are do, seeing we, that. We do have problems at Dublin Airport. And I was just going to come. Our operational problems are impacted by what has been happening at Dublin Airport. Uh, and that is really down to staffing, not just for the DAA, but staffing at the airline's check-in desks, which are often not manned by the airline themselves, and their ground handlers. Mm. So... It's a staffing issue that every business can relate to. So whilst on the one hand, as president of the Irish Travel Agents Association, I want the DAA to sort out the operational issues, I can understand from a staffing point of view the challenges they face. The other operational challenge that we're facing, and that is also staffing related, is the passport challenge. So in Ireland... I thought that they'd got those passport challenges... No. Sorted online. Online, perfect. Yes. If you're renewing, it's perfect. If you're a family with young kids and the kids are getting a new passport, it's a nightmare. You know, we, we had the, the Minister for, for Foreign Affairs yesterday claiming that the documentation was being incorrectly completed by 40% of consumers, I'm sorry, but 40% of people under 40 years of age, which is what this audience and this demographic is, know how to use a computer and know how to complete a form. So I don't buy it. There's there's way more significant issues around the staffing and the fact that Irish consumers who are looking for passports can't actually contact somebody and speak to somebody in the passport office. One more question I wanted to ask you about Irish consumers and to pick up on that comparison between 2019. Can you talk to me a little about price. How did the prices compare now to 2019? Because we're very conscious of the inflationary pressures on everything, the supply chain issues. What are we looking at in terms of changes? Prices have gone up. We're probably looking at airfares in the peak of July and August at, you know, 50, 60 euros higher. But if you look at... Per person. Per person. Per person. And I think that's the airlines kind of saying demand is going to be strong, so therefore we know we can charge those prices. In the off-peak, we are seeing Ryanair and Aer Lingus be very price responsive, be very competitive. There's constant sales. So the message is, if you don't pay those prices, travel off-peak. Challenge is for a family, you're stuck to the peak. But the prices have not gone up as much as the hype around price increases have. And, you know, if you want value, go talk to your travel agent anywhere in Ireland put the onus on them to find the best deal for you irrespective of where you want to go most people are travelling within Europe because that's the easiest in terms of any of the post-COVID travel restrictions of which there are thankfully none other than the requirement to have your EU COVID digital cert so prices have gone up but not dramatically and I think the comparison to the alternative which is to stay at home for a third year is very good value when you go abroad Simon can I bring you back in here please Um Are you noticing and detecting any change in consumer behaviour when it comes to that issue of planning their trips themselves or are people reverting to travel agents more to be more secure in their planning and in the environment that they find themselves in in a post-COVID situation? Uh, Great question. Um, And yeah, I am absolutely delighted that one aspect of this terrible pandemic, which is actually going, I think, to have lasting benefits, is that people will realise the value of a travel agent. Um, Clearly, since the COVID pandemic began, I've had uh, probably tens of thousands of people um, bringing their problems that they've experienced with um, uh, travel bookings, and I'm still getting them. And I I think pretty exclusively, the the ones which remain are always people who thought, "Okay, I don't need a travel agent. I can do everything myself. I can... Find a cheap flight through an online travel agent and find, find some beds with a car rental. And by the DIY thing, yes, they might in good times um, save a bit of money, but I'm afraid long term, when things start to 
unraveling. You want a human on your side, and that's what a good travel agent will do, as well, of course, of finding you um, uh, the best value and offering you all the advice you need on, on COVID restrictions abroad and telling you what time it's a good idea to turn up at uh, Dublin Airport. Good news for you then, Paul, that uh, people are becoming more dependent on travel agents. Uh, something I wanted to ask you about, you're an online offering, you have a call service centre as well. Are you seeing more uh, need for augmented reality, virtual reality videos? All of that. Like the online offering now is really comprehensive and that's what the consumer wants when they're when they're looking to book online. They want, you know, ease through the funnel, ease of transaction, and they pretty much don't want to talk to consumers. But there is a huge cohort and a very large demographic that want advice and guidance, irrespective of their age, as to is this the right hotel? Is this the right view? Is this the right property resort for me? And that's where travel agents come in. And I think they really prove their worth in processing those refunds through COVID last year. We know things can happen. We know the unexpected can happen. If you're with a travel agent and there's a problem, it's one call and they are available. You know they're available because you've spoken to them to make the original booking and that's what it's about. Your money's secure, you should be getting the best deal and you should be getting excellent service. So get into your local travel agent. Well, with that sound advice, we'll have to leave it there. That's Paul Hackett from Click and Go and journalist and broadcaster Simon Calder. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. The great, the good and the extremely wealthy gathered at Davos this week to assess our economic fate. After the break, I'll be joined by economist Dan O'Brien to discuss if a world recession is now inevitable. Welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. This is Mandy Johnston. Now, at Davos this week, a Standards and Poor Rating Agency executive said that in 25 years attending the conference, he'd never seen such a focus on geopolitics. And what that really means is that for decades, investors and economists have viewed politics as something on the margins of their decision making. But with such major shifts and so many of them happening in geopolitics at the moment, it means that there's a big shift in economies around the world as well. Here to discuss now, I'm joined by Dan O'Brien, who is the chief economist for the Institute of International and European Affairs. And he's also a weekly columnist for the Sunday Business Post. Dan, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Mandy. Now, COVID-19 in China, the US Fed trying to slow down inflation, EU cost of living crisis, war on its doorstep, Brexit and emerging market food crisis. Davos certainly had a lot to get through this week, Dan. Um, I just wanted to, to get your take on their deliberations this week. Well, as you say, there, you know, there's the geopolitical question uh, really has been bigger now than any time since the end of the first Cold War in the in the 1990s, and there is a, a head spinningly large number of of, of issues uh, along with the geopolitics, obviously the Russian invasion of Ukraine and all of the implications of that, but also a growing realization that the relations between the, dem- the democratic world and China mm. uh, are not going to play out as as many, including myself, hoped uh, until maybe three, five years ago. And that, you know, we're, we're shaping up for another new Cold War. There's talk of an invasion of Taiwan. U.S. president just the other day probably misspoke, but said that America would, would protect Taiwan if China invaded it. And that's really a huge tripwire in the world. Over the over the years and decades to come, if if China were to do to you to Taiwan what Russia has done to Ukraine, uh, the the geopolitical implications and the economic implications of that would be multiples of the invasion of Ukraine. So we we are living in a in a world that you know maybe ten fifteen years ago we'd hoped we could all trade together and get along and iron out problems in various fora, but 
you know, now we see that the world is going to be a, a much nastier and um, more more fraught and and uh, place with greater rivalries. Yeah, um, just just in relation to China, just how important is it uh, to the prevailing market sentiment um, when uh, investors and economists are looking at a global picture? How much of a factor is it in their consideration? I'm just thinking of, of a comment I heard this week from from George Soros, who said that. Their COVID strategy was the biggest mistake that President Xi has made in his presidency so far. So it's clearly high in the minds of investors and investor sentiment, isn't it? Absolutely, and you know, China is a huge economy. It's it's close to overtaking the United States. After 150 years, the United States has 450 years. The United States has been the biggest economy in the world. China is now very close to overtaking it. Um, it manufactures massive amounts of things. We, you know, it's it's the biggest trading partner for the European Union. It has overtaken the United States as the European Union's biggest trading partner. Partner, just as one example. So China really matters in a way that Russia doesn't. Mm. You know, Russia is a small economy about the size of Spain or Italy. The only thing that really matters for the rest of the world about Russia is energy. But China is a totally different thing in the sense that it is much more integrated into the world economy. It's much bigger if it does, doesn't grow or if there are in the future, if there are issues around trade with the West and Russia, or the West and China, as there as there are now with Russia, then we will really, really feel that in a way that we only feel it with energy uh, when it comes to Russia. Mm. So China really does matter. And, and it, I think it's very important that people don't compare Russia and China. There's often this tendency to say China, Russia, Russia, China. They are completely different. Russia doesn't really matter economically. It's small. China really matters. It's mm. massive. Yeah. And, and even with the current COVID situation there and the queues that are happening at the ports, the effect of the supply chain and the effect that that has all over the world is already being seen without any sort of further escalation of their geopolitical tensions. Can I move just um, on to the US, Dan, please? Uh, Jay Powell, uh, the the chair of the US Fed, still seems semi-confident that a soft landing for the US is possible. What's, what's your take on that? A very difficult one to call. Uh, let's first of all say that if a central banker doesn't sound confident, then the markets will panic mm. and all hell will break loose. So central bankers have to sound confident. In reality, you know the, the situation in the U.S. Thankfully, from a European perspective, is 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 worse. That we in Europe, our inflation problem is not as serious, in my view, as in the United States. In the United States, it took off much earlier. It's more widespread. It's not just related to, to energy, as most of our inflation is on this side of the, of the Atlantic. Um, it very much looks like the Americans overstimulated their economy mm. during the pandemic. That caused a surge in demand, and that has generated inflation. They've had, they have a tight labor, very tight labor market as well, so you're getting a wage price uh, uh, spiral developing there. So it, it's, it looks as though the Fed let inflation get out of control, and now it'll have to engineer a slowdown of the economy. The question is, do, when it puts on the brakes, is the car going to come to a, a, a jolting halt? And you know, increasingly, the view is that inflation has gone so far that it will be very difficult to halt inflation without halting the economy in the US. And how do how do how does a government uh, tackle that issue? How do they halt inflation without causing a recession? 
well, this is the you know this is the huge question now in economic policy in the United States, uh, and it's it's you know there's no exact science to this. Mm. Economies are complicated things. It's not a simple, you know, the analogy of a car, the brake is way oversimplifying it. Um, you know, it gives a, an idea of, of of what the objective is. You have a motor, you have a, uh, a car making forward momentum. It's going too fast, and you need to slow it. But of course, economies are much more complicated than 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 cars or vehicles of any kind. So the difficulty for policymakers to to slow the economy to the point that inflation comes back down without causing a recession um, is 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 one that is you know no, nobody has guaranteed answers to it. Uh, but the real fear in the United States now is that inflation has got so entrenched that the policymakers are going to have to slow the economy to the point that it will go into a recession. And Dan, another thing that I wanted to ask you about in terms of a recession is how does how do different countries categorise what a recession is, or even on a global scale? What do the IMF, uh, how do they quantify or qualify a recession? Well, the, the, the technical uh, um, way of, of describing a recession is two consecutive quarters of GDP contraction. Now, you know, that, that's, that's pretty a bit technical for most people. But, you know, when you, when you see um, inflation, when you see unemployment rising, uh, would probably be a better uh, indication for most people um, of, of a recession. But the technical thing is when output, when the, when the amount the economy produces contracts over a six month period. And what's your um, assessment of that actually happening? Do you think that we're, we're heading for a, a global recession? On balance, no. Uh, although I don't say that with a high level of un- with certainty, given the amount of uncertainties there are out there, uh, it really is. You know, in my quarter of a century looking at economies, I, I just don't remember a time with just so many variables, so many things changing, uh, so many challenges. So, um, you know, if you, if you look at uh, Europe, I would be, you know more confident about Europe than than many other regions of the world because I say I think we, we got it broadly right with COVID in terms of economic stimulus. We didn't go too far, so our inflation isn't as entrenched. Therefore the ECB won't have to hit the brakes as hard and that should mean that we, we can come through. Um, there are the COVID risks in China and there are the policy risks we've just discussed in the United States and they're the three big poles. Now if if, if the United States and China for different reasons were to go into recession, then the headwinds for Europe become greater. Mm-hmm. Um, and if all three regions go into recession, then you effectively have a global recession. But you know, I'm sorry, I can't be more more give a give a give a firmer answer. But it really is difficult to 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 predict or forecast things these days. No, I I absolutely understand that. If you're just joining us, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and we're talking to economist Dan O'Brien. Now, Dan, um, I read a piece that you wrote in early May which was quite optimistic, actually, about Ireland and, and our capacity to weather the impending storms, which I'll turn to in a moment. But can we just talk about Europe a little bit uh, for a second? What are the EU commissions saying now about stagflation? I've seen them predicting a 0.5% growth rate by this summer. Is that still possible or is it too optimistic as we head towards interest rate increases? Yeah, look, the, the the commission is pretty much in line with, with private sector forecasters. So it's not... That you know that the, the, the Eurocrats are putting up a spin on this because their political bosses are telling them mm. to. That the general view amongst the forecasting community is that Europe will avoid recession, that we'll continue to grow. Now there's a debate about 
if there's a cutoff of Russian gas later this year, uh, going into the winter, what, what effect that will have on the economy. Now, the Commission believes that even if we get a hard cutoff in Russian gas, that the European economy won't contract. Mm -hmm. And it also believes, uh, rightly in my view, that in the inflation effect of huge increases in oil prices, like these increases are like the 1970s all over again, that they will wash out and inflation will come back down next year to more normal levels. Now, I think that's that's you know that's as good a forecast as you can make at the moment. Uh, so, I'm, I, as I say, I'm reasonably optimistic about the European situation. Mm. And I just wanted to explore that piece that you, you wrote in early May where you're talking about Ireland's capacity to weather the impending storms. Can you um, just take me through some of the, I suppose, the, the, the better performances of the Irish economy when you juxtapose us against other European member states or even the UK? Yeah, well, like when we went into the into the, you know the, the COVID crisis, um, the Irish economy really was in, a, in very good shape. Uh, it was lean, competitive. Almost every measure was showing that it was growing. Uh, hadn't got to the point where you know there were excesses. Uh, there was no uh, excessive borrowing. Uh, wage growth was was nicely high. People real incomes were growing nicely, but it wasn't running out of control. Uh, we would become uncompetitive, and of course, you know the the success of the export sector side of the economy was was you know really doing well, and foreign direct investment was flooding in. So. We, we went into this in much better shape than, say, 2008 when we went into, you know, the, the Irish property bubble and the global financial crisis when it was, it was really miserable. So those strengths have really played to the Irish economy. Uh, in particular, the two things we, we export most, which are pharmaceuticals and uh, computer services. These are these totally dominate our, our exports to an extent I'm, I'm, I think people may not fully realize we often tend to think ourselves as, a, as an agricultural exporter mm. but but these two exports are you know 10 times both of them are 10 times more than than agricultural exports they're huge now we went into a pandemic what sort of industries would you want to be in in a pandemic i think if you sat down and you you'd say pharmaceuticals and tech would be the two things you'd want to be in and but there we were. That's they were the industry we were in. Yeah, actually, in, in Davos this week, the only sector that seemed optimistic in the, all of that sort of somber uh, messaging that was coming out was actually the tech sector. And you know, it's it's just one of those high growth sectors, despite stock market uh, developments recently that, that many of the tech uh, stocks have been battered. But you know, in terms of sales and growth, these are these are huge industries now, and they're changing. And you know, we all know from just the amount of phone and computer usage we have that uh, you know that these are somewhat these are part of our lives, and they're not going away. Mm -hmm. So Ireland has you know has been. We saw the announcements uh, this week about Apple's expanding its its presence in in Cork. Um, you Know, those those big tech global tech companies and, and smaller ones um you know Ireland is a, is a hub in the transatlantic economy for that growing high growth industry so um you know it's exactly where you would want to be and it is a real strength for the for the Irish economy one of the things we were talking about in our previous discussion was staff shortages in tourism um and airlines is that a real problem for us here now in Ireland well, look, you know, I, I'm certainly hearing it is uh, from nearly every employer. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think I've ever got anything more wrong. You know, if you had told me two years ago that we would go through such a pandemic and we'd be talking about labor shortages, mm. you know, I was really, I, I was really 
felt we were we were at a we were going to have a, have a you know a, a depression type uh, a period after the pandemic, but thankfully that hasn't hasn't happened. Quite the opposite. Mm. Um, all employers are talking about um, needing you know staff shortages in nearly every area. But uh, you know we'd much rather have a problem of staff shortages than on a bit large scale unemployment. So you know that's that's a positive rather than a negative overall. One of the things you highlight as well is your concern about energy supply uh, and the requirement by the state to invest heavily in this. Yeah, look, you know, we, we like, you know, it's, it's, I struggle sometimes to think how little prepared we are for this. You know, the, the completely obvious um, backup we need is, is liquefied natural gas. And, it's not, it's uh, not just know. us, though. Really, across Europe, I think there's been a, a lack of planning for for the mid to, to longer term energy security piece. And maybe the war in Ukraine has brought a realisation that the transition might not be as easy as policymakers thought it was. Yeah, look, it's true. You know, I don't think many people expected we'd be in a situation where where there would be such a uh, disruption to to Russian uh, Russian energy supplies coming westwards. Um, but as an island, um, you know, mm. I, we we really are vulnerable, um, and uh, the transition to to a. a to much lower emission economy uh, will take time and we're not going to get there quickly or easily. Um, and in the meantime, you know, it seems to me that uh, liquefied natural gas from places like the United States that are reasonably politically stable um, is the shorter term, uh, short to medium term answer to greater energy security as we move to, to a much lower emission economy. Dan, just to broaden it out again and to, to ask you one final question. Um, the CEO of Citigroup, Jane Fraser, said at the Davos conference this week that, you know, there could be a danger we can talk ourselves into um, a recession. Um, and, and one of the things I wanted to ask you is, look, are there one or two things that could happen uh, in a global sense to arrest this decline that everybody is talking about on the, the world economic stage, the war in Ukraine, how China handles COVID-19. What are the big things that could change in a positive way to to stave off uh, a recession? Well, sentiment is one of them. Mm. And, and, you know, I've been making this point since the war broke out that, you know, geopolitics gets talked about a lot at, when, it, when it's happening. You know, if you think back to 9-11 or the invasion of Iraq, these were dominating everything at the time. But if you go back, you, you find that in the economic data, uh, in, in the Western world, obviously, not, not for the countries directly involved in, in conflagra- conflagration, but in the, in, in the rest of the world, you actually find that the huge geopolitical uncertainty around 9-11 and the invasion of Iraq doesn't show up in the economic data. Mm. So we, we can often overstate big eye-catching geopolitical events. Now, this is certainly different because it's compounded inflationary pressures. But it may be things settle down. It may be that China opens up and that its zero COVID policy uh, doesn't prove to be as unsuccessful as it looks at the moment. And it may be that agreement on uh, some sort of peace deal can be worked out in in, in Ukraine uh, and things settle down and sentiment then shifts the other way mm-hmm. and we come through this and you know not not every fear of recession materializes. 
So it's it's uh, perfectly possible that the world can avoid a, a global recession. Well, let's hope that you're right and the doom and gloom at Davos doesn't pervade all. Uh, for now, we'll have to leave it there. That's Dan O'Brien, Chief Economist for the Institute of International and European Affairs and weekly columnist for the Sunday Business Post. Dan, thank you very much for joining us today. Many thanks. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. I hope you enjoyed the conversations with our guests today. And if you have any suggestions for new topics, you can contact us at takingstock at newstalk.com. Now, while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're also available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the Newstalk app. Next week, I'll be joined by Danny McCoy, who's CEO of IBEC, to discuss how well prepared Ireland are to weather the economic storms that are facing us in the months ahead. My thanks to today's guests and to Taking Stock producer John Fardy with Jojo Cardoso on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. So from me, Mandy Johnston, thank you for tuning in and enjoy the rest of your day.